Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's presenting sponsor is Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas and one of the hidden gems of this area. If you're interested in local history, from the ranchers and pioneers who first settled this area to the American Indians who lived here long before that, you can learn so much from the artifacts and collections at PPHM. Learn more at panhandleplains.org. Hey Amarillo is also sponsored by Wick Realty. I've used Wick personally to buy and sell a home over the past couple of years, and in a city filled with realtors and real estate companies, they're one of the best. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. And this is still a great time to buy a home. If you're in the market, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Today's guest is Chandra Perkins. And what I love about listeners to this podcast is that they are always recommending people for me to interview. And I think Chandra's name is probably the one I hear most often. She's a longtime teacher for Amarillo Independent School District, but she's also the founder and director of StoryBridge, a nonprofit that works to improve literacy for Amarillo children by giving them free access to books. Now, I'm a writer. My kids grew up with tons of books, but two out of three low-income families don't have a single children's book in their home. Chandra is trying to fix that. So here's Chandra Perkins. Chandra Perkins, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, Jason. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. I love the show. Well, I appreciate that you listen to the show. I know you do, and and I'm grateful for that. But I uh, have wanted to speak to you for quite a while. You're one of those guests that I have a lot of people come to me and say, oh, you should interview this person. And like your name gets brought up constantly. Wow. So you've been on my list for quite a while, uh, and and I'm eager to talk to you and, and learn you. more about your story. So I know that we'll talk about StoryBridge as we go, but I really want to start like I start with every guest and just ask how you ended up here. So why are you in Amarillo in the first place? That's a fun question to answer because I never saw myself here. Um, my husband and I moved here in 2000, so we've, we're celebrating 20 years in Amarillo. Okay. I grew up in Austin, so um, we moved there when I was two from Dallas. And then after high school graduation, went to ACU in Abilene, met my husband there. And then uh, my bachelor's degree from ACU was actually psychology. I'm kind of an amateur psychology nut. And I really thought that I was going to do school counseling. Okay, That was kind of my path. Child life in the hospital really appealed to me, too. Uh, But by the time I got my bachelor's, I decided on school counseling. But nobody told me that you have to teach for three years before you can even be certified to to be a school counselor hired. Is that like a rule across school districts? Uh You have to have three years of teaching. And so I thought, well, darn, I have a psychology degree. (laughs) So, and then my husband also graduated with a science degree, biology and chemistry, and, and he decided at the last minute he would like to coach and teach. So we were both kind of in the same position where we we felt drawn to, for different reasons, education, mm-hmm. but not really qualified to be hired by a school yet. Right. So we actually found the PACE program okay. at WT. 
And that is what brought us up here. We were hired by San Jacinto Christian Academy at, I was 22, <laughs> 21. And the PACE program, like it allowed teachers or maybe college graduates yes. to get their teaching certificate while in the while classroom? Teaching. Yes. Okay. So I did... Um, yeah, we were kind of hired by the private school, which was amazing family. Still have a lot of friendships from there, both of us. And I remember them calling us in Abilene to interview up, up here and then telling my husband, because really they just called Drew to talk about a high school science job and mm-hmm. coaching stuff. And and they said, well, I think we might have a fourth grade classroom. Does your wife want to teach fourth grade? And I remember Drew like covering the mouthpiece of the phone. And do you want to teach fourth grade in Amarillo? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was that yeah, kind of random. That was the no interview plan. process. <laughs> yeah. So we came up here and really fell in love with that school family and taught for the first year. And then the PACE program had us in school all that summer. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, that was that's kind of how the PACE program works. Now, for me, I, I don't know that we ever even planned on staying in Amarillo for very much longer than it took to, to get, get through, through that, through that program. program. Mm-hmm. Um, because it wasn't home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have, Drew has a grandmother um, here at the time, grandmother and grandfather that were here when we moved here. But that's it. Yeah, I was going to ask, was Amarillo on your radar at, at all? all? I mean, had you driven through or Well, in anything high school, like my family took a vacation to Yosemite. We drove through here and okay. we went to Texas, the show. Okay. And I had great memories of that show in the canyon. That was it. Wow. That was really my, my schema of Amarillo as an adult was that drive through. Um, well, at least you were in a pretty part of Amarillo. You oh, know, it, yeah. It wasn't just it was a great passing memory. through on I-40. Absolutely. So yeah, we came up here and and I think we might have intended to go back to Abilene or even Central Texas to kind of start our life, but we were expecting our our first child that first summer of 2001. And it was in the middle of my classes at WT and really she was due in October, but in July, so really a week into that second summer session, I went into early labor with her and very like out of the blue, no signs or warning alarms or anything like that. But um, anyway, she was born very premature at 24 weeks and and she weighed one pound, 13 ounces. And she lived in NICU at Northwest for three weeks before we lost her. Okay. And at that time, you know, still, we had just been here a year. We had our family from school. Right. And we had a church family that we still attend. And I remember her service was out at Memorial Park outside in the summer. And I remember even, I mean, grief is very foggy when you look back. But there's this vivid memory for me of hundreds of people that showed up for us at that that time. Mm-hmm. And I just remember panning under these trees, you know, we're sitting under this tent thing and and just looking at all these faces that love us and and invested in us as 
we were kids. Yeah. We were 22, 23 with no family here. And they, and I think there was something in that moment. In fact, I remember my dad who, there were lots of people from Austin who came up, family and friends. And my dad had been kind of confused as to why Amarillo, you know, and he said that afternoon, I, I see why Amarillo now. Hmm. Um, just the community and the family that, that came out when we needed family. They were there in a heartbeat. And we, have, we won't leave now. Yeah. <laughs> so this like you is, haven't looked back really. Right. Since then. What, what was your church at that time or church we, you attend now? We go to Southwest Church of Christ okay. over on 45th. Yeah. And so it's just, and I mean, that's a story that... I hear over and over, you know, is, is in a situation like that, you know, that's where the church is really good, you know, and, and the people that you meet there, the friends that you have there are just able to do whatever you need to kind of hold you up, you know, during a, that fog of grief, you know, like you talked about. Yeah. I tell people we, we would have drowned, um, if not for family from the school and from the church that, that just loved us and were there. Over and over and over, didn't Did it leave. Feel like a decision, whether it was you or you and your husband, like kind of after you came out of of that fog, saying, "All right, this is it. We're here, and and this is where we've planted our family." Almost, maybe not a conscious conversation that we had, but where before that we could have seen future f- other places. Mm-hmm. After that those other places just kind of drifted into the okay. background and and this felt like this is our family this is our home this is this is where we want to stay this is where we want to raise our kids this is who we want to raise our kids with tell me about your career after that point you mm-hmm. know as you got the teaching certificate and began to sort of figure out what's my path going to be i was hired by AISD my husband also the same year 2002 so we after a couple years in private school and taught fourth grade at Rogers Elementary mm-hmm. for nine I think well I didn't teach fourth grade for nine I was at Rogers for nine years I had a year in kinder decided I'm not cut out for kinder <laughs> <laughs> then moved to first which I really fell in love with first grade is there a big difference between kindergarten and first grade yes I argue that all the time and people fall one way or the other. You know, they're either really um, feel comfortable in kinder or really feel comfortable in first, it seems like. But anyway, I I loved first grade. Um, And then from there, when my two boys who were born in 04 and 05 went to elementary, then I got a job at Windsor and we, we all went together. Okay. And so... Yeah, the boys went through Windsor with me down the hall. And so that was really a fun experience. I was at Windsor for five or six years. And then, so I taught fourth grade at Windsor. And then at that point, transitioned out of the classroom to um, what's called reading recovery. Mm -hmm. It's a very intense, one-on-one reading specialist, a lot of training hours involved in that. Um, And it's for children in first grade who classroom instruction is not, is not enough. Okay. And so they're um, needing really intense one-on-one reading. Maybe they're behind their peers in the classroom and they're not going to catch up on their own. It's only with that intensive 
Exactly. So I did that for a few years. Um, and while I was in that position, the cluster director, when we did clusters, decided to kind of create a new position called literacy coach. Okay. And so the reading recovery teachers in the Amarillo High Cluster became also known as literacy coaches, All right. which was in a lot of new training and on coaching. And so that's where I got that kind of went into a coaching foray, which I loved. Um, and also at Windsor started the writing program that's still living and really fun to hear about. Um, Belmar's doing also kind of the same mm -hmm. thing where we do writing contests every six weeks and writing kind of pep rallies um, in an attempt to cast a really broad net to get kids who may not have seen themselves as writers before, but we're going to make it so fun right? <laughs> and so uh, encouraged and such a wide cultural thing at our building that you can't help but want to be, okay. you know, <laughs> that's kind of the idea. That was really fun. Then we moved to, or I got a promotion to curriculum specialist um, and they moved me to Emerson Elementary right. to do that. So that's where I still am. However, this year is my first year to go part-time with AISD, so I can do StoryBridge part-time. Okay. And it's a little different. So we'll, we'll get to StoryBridge in a minute. Before we do that, though, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the differences between the schools. Mm -hmm. So Rogers is very different from Windsor. Mm -hmm. Windsor is very different from Emerson. Yes. Tell me about the maybe the kids that you served or or some of the distinct challenges and differences, you know, going from one school to another school, you know, with very different students, different socioeconomic status, all those kinds of things. You have my permission to interrupt me if I say too much, because I could talk about this a long <laughs> well, time. Well, I, I want to hear about it, so. <laughs> okay, at Rogers, while, while I was there, the demographic changed very much um, from a lot of probably what people grew up with in Amarillo mm -hmm. as far as um, that neighborhood to this influx of refugee families that came, I want to say like, oh, eight, I may be off, but. So you were there like around, to early 2000s to mm -hmm. like oh, when? Oh, two to 2011, okay. I think. So maybe when you started, it was primarily maybe a, a blue collar working mm -hmm. class yes. kind of neighborhood a lot of rent houses mm -hmm. i guess yep um majority hispanic okay yeah that was kind of what it looked like and then we started getting the first refugees um being resettled in that area um brought in from catholic family services and um man i remember some of the first stories being in the classroom kids that came in fourth grade or fifth grade with really no school background, no academic hmm. kind of um, foundation. And we did not know what to do with them. And so I remember teaching math in first grade and the best we could come up with was here's this kid from Africa. He, he has no math background. So we're going to put him in your class for a while. And since then, we've gotten a lot so better with knowing what to do. So you got like a 12-year-old in there yeah. with, you know, Yeah, and I'm telling you, he was the best thing for those first graders because he was serious. Hmm. 
He was serious. He was sitting up straight. He was raising his hand. I was super thankful for him in that class. A good example, then, absolutely. For the little kids. Yeah, yeah. And it was amazing. So from that first experience of a, an older refugee child coming down to our classroom, to in the next two or three years, in my own classroom, having, you know a quarter to a third of my class would be refugee children. Um, a lot of them still in a silent, in quote, uh, period mm-hmm. of just listening. Just, they don't have any words to articulate yet. Can't put the sentences together, but so much listening, so much absorbing of the culture and the classroom and the routines and the expectations and and the whole thing was probably a traumatic experience, just being uprooted, coming to a brand new culture, oh much less yes. you're in a classroom where you don't understand the language. I mean, there's not just the, you know, the hard stuff you can see, but like the psychological stuff that's, oh, yeah. that's in the background. The nice thing about having kids in a primary kind of classroom coming into that is there was a lot of time for them to draw and sing early kind of primary songs. I have I have a specific child in mind. I remember if he, if I gave him three extra minutes, he was drawing these pictures of war like hmm. you would not believe, just tents and guns and swords even and appendages on the floor, on right. the ground and and I and helicopters and helicopters dropping things and I thought there is no there's no way we have even a concept of what he's seen, what he's been through, and, and couldn't say it, can't right. tell the story yet, but could just draw it. How do you teach a kid like that, um, You know, much less an entire classroom, but like when a child comes in, they don't have the language, you know, you're, you're trying to teach reading and math and stuff to you know, the English speaking kids in your classroom and, mm-hmm. and this set of kids are the same age, but they don't even have that baseline. Like, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. I think we're still figuring that out, honestly. And at the time when, and I was figuring it out kind of on, on the yeah, ground. Just yeah. into it. I remember thinking, oh man, they don't, a lot of them didn't really know when their birthday was um, for many reasons. But I remember thinking at the time, how sad. I mean, that's heartbreaking. Birthday parties and birthdays are such a big part of kids' uh, lives and experiences. And and I thought, I know, I'll give I'll give all these kids a surprise birthday party on their birthday. And so we planned these surprise parties, and we had several in my classroom that year. So, and the kids got to wear, you know, I'd send a couple of them out on an errand, and then I'd say. <gasps> okay, guys, it's time to do another surprise party. It's so-and-so's birthday today. And they just kind of sprung into motion. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd hang these streamers and I'd pull out this cake I got. And I remember this one refugee child from Burma. It was his birthday, I thought. I mean, to the best of our knowledge, he was still silent. Right. Um, but yeah, he came back in. We all stood up and yelled, surprise! And the look on his face was like ultimate terror. <laughs> I thought, he, this poor child, I've probably traumatized him again. He's having um, helicopter flashbacks yes, or something. bless his heart. I mean, I think we just do the best we can, but really, um, their 
their schema for for life and for rituals like that is just so different. Mm-hmm. So, not our way is not better. Um, but I, for some reason, at the time, thought he needed this surprise mm-hmm. party yeah. experience, and I don't know what he thinks about it now. Looking back, <laughs> I hope he's forgiven me. <laughs> there's so there's a lot of culturally, politically, there's a lot of discussions about refugees and. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's good or whether it's bad and the value um, <clears throat> or the problems, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I wonder if having had such close contact, you know, with the kids who were probably not here because of their choice or had no control over anything. Right. Is there something that you learned about what maybe a refugee family is going through or why they're here and what's meaningful about that, you know, in their lives? One of the things that impresses me most about the refugees that are coming in is the perseverance it takes to get through that whole process. It's not easy. It is long and many, many steps and many, many boxes to check off mm-hmm. in order to to be granted that refugee status. Sometimes like a couple of years mm-hmm. in the Absolutely. system before yeah. they... A couple of years in a refugee camp, okay, you know, um, in a demilitarized zone somewhere, you know, uh, was a lot of the the stories that we were hearing, and and children who had spent really their entire life in a in a camp like that until coming here, and the the gratitude with which these parents approach school mm-hmm. just was so humbling to me as a teacher. They trusted me implicitly. I mean, language barrier aside, they were begging for me to help. And they want that, they want that American dream for their kid. I mean, what parent doesn't want their kid to be successful and happy and, mm-hmm. and have all the things they need without without worrying if you're gonna have it tomorrow, which is how they had spent the last so many years. Do you think that that mindset in the parents, did it transfer to the kids? Like, did the kids come in happy to be in that situation, wanting to mm-hmm. learn stuff? I mean, um, could you see maybe a, a work ethic difference or a, you know, you, you mentioned the kid in the kindergarten class yeah. who was paying attention and sitting oh, up straight. Yeah. I mean, was is that something that's fairly common? There's so many variables. The motivation, the trauma they've been through, and I think we're getting better at addressing the trauma and, and making sure that the environment for learning is sensitive to mm-hmm. a child that's been through trauma like that. Now we're able to kind of put them in a place where for a while they might be able to have some time and um, in just school procedure. Um, this is how we, this is why we walk in a line, right? you know, because that's not anything they've experienced yet. And it's, it's not like there was a structure in many of these refugee camps. Um, many of them didn't have a, a school set up. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that is new. Now, uh, once they know how to communicate, which I think is there for a child, the first frustration um, I can't imagine <laughs> right. being immersed in a place where I cannot communicate to get my needs met. But kids can do that faster than we can. Absolutely. Like that, that process of learning the new yeah. language occurs yeah. so much faster with a mind that's you know still still mm-hmm. in the process of forming. Yeah, and you can see the gears turning 
for so, for, uh, and I imagine how exhausting that must be to just be so focused on learning the language for so long. They must be exhausted mm-hmm. at the end of the day yeah. after just listening to it all day and trying to pick it up. Yeah, we we have like, a, for example, um, at Travis Sixth Grade Center right now, we have a, a classroom that my friend teaches that is for newcomers. Um, and that can take a lot of the pressure off. Really, there's, there is a tremendous pressure in classrooms everywhere today in right. public school. But when you don't know the language plus the academic pressure, it's just a little bit much for a lot of kids. So if we can alleviate some of that classroom pressure and just focus on language for a little bit, um, I think they're seeing good results from that. And then being able to to address those academic needs in a very individual basis. What is What classes does this child need to be in? And I would tell you from an elementary perspective, in my experience, the kids loved school. Mm-hmm. They loved coming to school. They very social, which makes sense if I think about what I know about how they grew up in right. this camp. Um, Much being, closer quarters maybe than, absolutely. than most American kids would have grown up. Yeah. And you think about in a, even in like an anthropological kind of sense, the the security and the survival requires a social ability, okay. skill. And so they were very naturally driven to create a social structure. They wanted friends. They tried to make friends. They're very successful at it mm-hmm. most of the time. The teacher relationship was interesting. They, I, Because I was probably their first experience with that. And I mean, that's typical of any kindergarten classroom yeah, is trying to understand, okay, what's your job and what's my job in here? <laughs> but yeah, lots of kids are learning that. So, you know, we were talking about some of the differences before we got into the refugee part, which I'm glad we got into. Yeah. I, I love hearing those kinds of stories. Um, but also thinking of your career and going from Rogers to a, a school like Windsor, which mm-hmm. is, you know, much more suburban, I guess. Yeah. Um, parents are um, a little more settled, a little higher income. And then going mm-hmm. to another school like Emerson, which mm-hmm. is a, another big change. Yeah. What were some of the things that you started to learn just about, you know, kids and literacy and the the ideas that led to StoryBridge? One of the big ones for me is I remember the last day. My last day at Rogers was the last day of school that year, and I had all my stuff loaded in a, a truck and trailer, empty classroom. And I had nine years of relationships with this community And so I remember crying all the way home from that last day and promising myself, I won't, this won't be goodbye. You know, I I won't leave these kids without coming back to say hi and visit and maintain these relationships with children and, and parents and friends up there. And it just takes a few years of being in this southwest quadrant of the city to realize, man, you have to be intentional about going back Mm -hmm. because here I am. I live in the southwest part of town. I go to church in the southwest part of town. I work in the southwest part of town. My kids are in school in the southwest part of town. 
all of our shopping is here. All of our entertainment is here. It'd be really easy for me, for anyone, never to leave <laughs> this right. part of town. And I realized about the time that StoryBridge started, yeah, this could be, that's a lot of the reason that we called it Story Bridge, <laughs> the bridge concept of you got to have a, a channel, you got to have a reason and a way to get out of your own comfort zone and, and mobilize to go somewhere else, a reason to, to interact with, with other parts of the city. And so bringing books to kids is a really fun way mm -hmm. to, to go back and to see them and to maintain connection in a broader sense to keep ourselves from our world being just too small. Okay. Tell me about the need then that story bridge is meeting um, beyond that bridge part, you know, mm -hmm. talk, talk to me about the story part um, and, and what you saw, you know, among the kids that maybe you taught at Emerson versus the kids and the families, you know, that you taught at Windsor mm -hmm. and the value of, of the books, you mm -hmm. know, for, for children in that situation. When StoryBridge started, really the intention was to, to work during the summer, really just exclusively mm -hmm. in the summer. Um, I tell people, you know, I got a few friends and said, we're going to get some books together, my two boys and I. And the idea was, like I described the, the bridge, let's get out of our quadrant of town. It's summer. We don't have anything to do. So we'll keep my kids busy. And, um, and I thought this will be, this will be fun. Y'all have books that you're not using anymore. So let's do that. I love reading to kids. Always loved it. One of the best parts of teaching elementary. Mm -hmm. Well, any grade really. So we'll just get a box of extra books and we'll take it up to Mesa Verde Park. The principal there, Charla, is one of my best friends. So we started up there in an area that I knew was um, high need. And so we got up to the park and let's say we've got a book, we've got a box from our house of about a hundred books. It took the boys maybe five minutes to right. gather books that they had outgrown or somebody gave it to them for Christmas. They were never going to read it anyway. <laughs> I mean, so there were eight kids that day and we got out of the car and I remember calling out to them, anybody want to read a story? And I'm sure they thought, crazy lady in the corner, right. <laughs> red alert. But they came over. They were so nice. And they let, they sat down and they let me read them this book. And, and I said, we have some books to give y'all if y'all want to look through what we brought and pick one to keep. You're welcome to take it and have it. And they were thrilled and they loved looking through the box of books we brought. And they each picked one. And we got in the car that day. And I remember, I remember getting in the car feeling really proud of myself. Mm -hmm. Like, you'd done your good man. Deed. Yeah, I'm a great mom. I'm a good citizen. I mean, I was feeling super proud. I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then 
in the distance that it took me to get from Mesa Verde Elementary back to Grand, really just a few blocks, but it's it's their neighborhood. It's mm-hmm. where they live. And just looking around me, it dawned on me, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm taking 92 books back to sit in my garage. And, and these kids... I might have just given them the only book they have in their house. Right. Because I know for a fact, at that time, I'd been teaching for 15, 16 years. I know how many snack packs we're giving away every Friday, you know, across the city. I I know the struggle to keep seasonally appropriate shoes on kids' feet when they're growing constantly and coats um, when it's cold and uh, man, I, that's my, I can't believe it. It didn't dawn on me before that if food and clothes is an issue, then books are not even on the radar. Right. right. Those know? are further down the list of survival items. Exactly. And the more I thought about it, the difference between um, achievement in areas where resources are an issue in areas where they're not. I explain it like it's kind of like that scene in Finding Nemo where Dory puts everything together, all these flashbacks mm-hmm. of all my different experiences in the classroom, the struggles and the the data um, was just constant. Um, and I thought, holy cow, they have not had books in their house. And that was kind of the impetus for a real um, dedication mm-hmm. to the mission. I I feel like in those few blocks from Mesa Verde to Grand, um, God really broke my heart for this issue and made me feel like, oh my gosh, if we could if we could do something about that, it would change everything. It could be a complete game changer if they are all, if they all had access to books hmm. in their home. And the more research I did, the more that played out. I mean, uh, nationally, there's so much research that I had no idea about until I looked it up. Um, but in fact, it is the number one predictor of academic success wow. is the actual number like a, a physical a number. physical tangible number of books that a child has in their home is the um, is the only significant behavior measure that can predict reading scores. Wow, which blew my mind, and I thought that is not fair. Yeah, because that's one of those things <laughs> it, you said you had hundreds of books. I'm thinking back to when my kids were little, and that was what I was always picking up. We just had piles and piles yeah. of books everywhere, and kids grow out of books. Mm-hmm. You know, you get rid of them whatever, and thinking that there are families of kids the same age that have zero books. Zero. In fact, two out of three low-income families have zero. So that's a that's a number we can figure out. I mean, it's thousands of kids in Amarillo that are starting school having had zero books mm-hmm. in their home. And it's um, just such a big inequality and you know hundreds in one house versus zero in another house absolutely when that one child is not going to read all hundred of those books right he or she probably has three books that they love and they Mm -hmm. read all the time yeah 
And nobody wants to throw books away. No, no. <laughs> so it's terrible. We're actually providing a pretty good service for people who are overflowing with books that they don't, that they realize, I don't need these anymore. My kid's not interested in these anymore, but who wants to throw them in the trash? I mean, you right. can't. So you just keep them and keep them. And um, so, yeah, it's been kind of a good service for people who have um, too many, realize they have too many. Um, so tell me what StoryBridge then became. Like once you had that epiphany, you know, mm-hmm. driving on your way to Grand Street and then figured out, okay, there's a whole bunch of books in this one part of town. There's zero books in this other part. How can we rebalance that inequality? So mm-hmm. tell me tell me what you ended up with then. Well, again, there's this this bridge concept that we would like to be the bridge between homes that are overflowing with books and homes that have zero. Because Access is just a game changer. So what StoryBridge does is we come in, we have, well, we have several programs working right now. The first one was really the the flooding of books to their homes, mm-hmm. um, which we've done in a couple different ways. The, the main way is these free book fairs that we are able to deliver to Title I schools okay. in we have not been able to reach every Title I school yet um, because our resources are just not extending that far. But we are reaching 16 Title okay. I schools, which is, I want to say, it's more than half All right. of what we need to reach. Um, and that's in what, like in it, three in years? How many, how many years? 2016 is when we started. Okay. We started doing the free book fairs, well... Yeah, at the end of that summer, what I realized was, okay, so people figured out we were doing this. We're going to this neighborhood every week. We're basically giving books away every right. week. We're reading with kids every week in the summer. It was amazing. And so people started bringing me their books from from all over to my garage. <laughs> so I would just try and bring them up. Every Thursday, we'd try and give away uh, more books. Um what happened is the summer ended and my garage is still full of books. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, well, it's not okay with me to just let them sit here till next summer. When I know the problem now and I know how urgent it is. So I realized, man, we can't stop. We're going to have to keep doing this through the school year. How are we going to get to these kids through the school year? So what we decided is we would um, visit Title I schools but we knew we couldn't see, we couldn't deliver books to all the kids at school that first year. We just didn't have enough. So we asked the teachers to invite their five highest need families. Okay. And so the free book fair that first school year was invitation only, but we did, oh, maybe eight or nine free book fairs that first school year. After that, I mean, the community just rallied around this need. We had these drop-off locations working where uh, you can go online and you can search for, um, well, on our website, on the StoryBridge website, you can click on donate books. And this map will pop up where we have 17 drop-off locations now. And people were dropping off books at these places, the churches and and Windsor and Sleepy Hollow said, we'll be a drop-off location. And um, businesses around and and so we were we had this tremendous c- 
community support. So that second school year, we were able to invite entire <laughs> campuses. Wow. Um, so we sent flyers home with every child, and we we said we don't just want to serve the the student, but we need to serve the the baby sister right. and the two year old brother um, because that's going to be where the generational change will come in. Is when we start seeing kids entering school that have had a background in literacy. Yeah, they're not just catching up, but they're actually exactly. doing that, it ahead of time. That's where we can affect change. Um, and so now we, uh, man. You're no longer storing it in your garage now. No, <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> I grew out of my garage, and then my church said, you can use our space that we've got. So they had a few shelves in our family service center that we used for a while. And then in um, 2017, Dyron Howell called um, and said, we're serving the same kids. How can I help you make this work? And um, storage was kind of the biggest issue at that time. So he said, bring all your books over here. So now we have this amazing collaboration with with Snack Pack um, where they've offered us a corner of the Mm -hmm. warehouse to operate out of. Do you have any idea how many books have passed through your your warehouse? I could figure that number out. Of all the books that we receive in donations, not all of those get delivered to kids. So we only serve birth to 12. Okay. So if the book is too mature, right. we don't pass it on. We, um, we end up sending those to Goodwill mostly, or high school, middle school teachers right. um, as we find them. <laughs> Um, if the book is too dated or too worn out, we're really only giving our kids stuff that they will be motivated to read. And so we want it to feel like a real book fair. We want we don't want it to feel like leftover crap. Right, right. <laughs> so, so we have given away over 100,000 wow. books okay. um, to date. I think it's like 100,000 260 or something like that. And we, I would say we keep about three fourths of what gets donated to us. And so there's math there. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot of books. Yeah. We've seen a lot of books come through. We end up collecting all the books that come from our drop-off locations. And then every month we meet up at the warehouse to sort through and we divide them by age group broad age group. So like zero to three years old and four to six years old. And then Spanish, we, we do get a few donated in Spanish, but the need for our kids to have literate experiences in their home language is so great. And so backed up by research that it's a lot easier for a kid to learn how to read in their home language. Okay. Because mom and dad can read too. Right. Yeah. And it's the language that they can predict. Right. If you think about, you know, when we read to our toddlers, you say, what's that in the barn? If they don't know the word horse, they're not going to get that. Right. Right. (laughs) But in their home language, they they would. So that's kind of the idea behind um, needing a lot of books in Spanish for our community. Right now, Spanish is the only other language that we are getting. However, we've had an exciting pilot program, I guess, with 
Ryan Pennington at Refugee mm-hmm. Language Project, where we're going to get some bilingual copies of. We started with The Boy Who Cried Wolf. And so there's English on one side and Spanish on the other. Um, and I gave him a 50 or so of these books. And then what he's going to do is tape over the Spanish part and right. have the people that he has relationships with who can translate the English into their native language, whether it's um, Karen or Swahili or right. whatever it is that we can't find books in. Okay. And they can distribute that to their community and, and read to their kids at home in their home language. And so that's really exciting for us. So to, to sort of wrap up this section, you know, you've gone from a career in the education world to now one that's spanning education and the nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that relies on either the generosity or the volunteerism of, you know, this community. Have, have you learned something about Amarillo as a teacher here for so long, or now as somebody who's working in nonprofits that, you know, that, that maybe has surprised you or, or has uh, kind of caught you unawares about this is how things work here? Man, I feel like I've learned so much uh, since this has started. One of the biggest is um, lessons I've learned would be AISD is such a tight family um, and really that was my network, right? my church and AISD. <laughs> so, and I almost, it almost felt like, is there anyone else out there? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of employees at AISD. I really felt like I pretty much know everybody in right. Amarillo. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you get out of that community a little bit, and, and I started, man, in the last year I've had, now I'm meeting with, administration at Northwest Hospital. We're going to start a pilot program called um, Born to Read 806, where we're providing a free book for every baby born at Northwest for a year. Cool. Met with the public library administration there, uh, met with Kiwanis clubs and Lions clubs and man, the nonprofit world here. Uh, There's just such, there are, it has opened my eyes to there are so many people in Amarillo that care about generational change and where is their part in it. Mm-hmm. And Family Service Center, we had a um, relationship with their early, uh, their home prevention where they go in and do some home visiting, early education stuff. And uh, just, I've met the best people who are doing whatever they can to fill in cracks for people who, who need it. Um, that's been really rewarding for me to see. and just confirms that this is just the best place to live. This week's episode is sponsored by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, located in Canyon on the campus of West Texas A&M University. I'm a huge fan of this museum. It's the largest history museum in Texas, for one thing. But one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is create a record of life here in Amarillo and Canyon during this moment of time. Well, Panhandle Plains has been doing that since it started in 1921. And what you may not know is that the museum itself is a nonprofit. The university helps with stuff like insurance and building maintenance, but the museum is primarily funded by membership and donations and visitors fees. So if it's been a while since you dropped in, go check it out. There's always something new to see among its 2 million artifacts, 
and the exhibits change all the time. PPHM is open year-round, so anytime is a great time to visit it. But one reason to go in the coming weeks is on Friday, March 6th, a special event called Crafts and Drafts at the Museum. This annual event is a fun evening of food, crafts, and draft beer samples, including some from local breweries. Now, if you enjoyed my beer fest last summer, this is a very similar event, but it's in a museum. So expect to get hands-on with DIY projects, enjoy food from a bunch of different local restaurants, show off your trivia skills, and hear from the Panhandle's beer brewing community. Tickets for Crafts and Drafts are $40 for non-members, $30 for members, and are all-inclusive. You can get them at panhandleplains.org. The event is 6 to 9 p.m. on March 6th, and you have to be 21 or over to attend. Okay, I'm back with Chandra Perkins. Chandra, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. As my guest, you get to answer those questions. And a lot of these are questions I ask of every guest on the podcast, except for the first one. And I wanted to ask this one specifically of you. What's your favorite children's book? Well, as a frequent listener of your podcast, I knew this was going to be my first really? question. Really? So you, yes. you uh, anticipated that? Oh, yeah. I've and become real you predictable. have to not be surprised that it's impossible to answer. Um, but I would say I was really trying, I, when I was little, or growing up anyway, I'll tell you two of my favorites. One was the BFG by Roald okay. Dahl. My third grade teacher read that to us out loud. And I was a falling out of my chair, rolling on the ground laughing. And that was... I guess uh, it was a book that I read and reread and reread and reread. And I'm not really a frequent rereader, but that one, it just made me laugh and it made me feel good and fanciful and imagination and all that. The other one that made a big impression on me when I was growing up is called Dear Mr. Henshaw by mm-hmm. Beverly Cleary. And I think I grew up in a very safe, functional, two parent household very predictable. Um, and I didn't know, but I had friends growing up in with parents who were getting divorced mm-hmm. at the time or had been or um, not quite so secure. Uh, and that book is written from the point of view of a child who, who his parents are divorced. And he does a lot of inner monologue. Just I'm thinking this. I'm, you know, I'm processing what what just happened. And books can be good mirrors and windows. Mm-hmm. Mirrors meaning you have to see yourself in a character, right? Um, and see a future for yourself in a book. Also, it's important for for you to learn about other, you know, other cultures, other experiences. And that one really stuck with me as a as a window to kids who are growing up and um, processing things at home that were difficult. Okay. that That's really interesting to know. Um, okay. So we'll shift gears here. What's your favorite restaurant in Amarillo? Also going to give you two on this one. <laughs> You're really going to be one like, of those guests. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. The Eatery on 6th Street okay. and um, Girasol over on Coulter. Mm-hmm. They're very similar, but I can't decide between the two of them. I really like the small, quaint, local, lots of light coming in through the windows. Yeah. And um, they they make really good salads and quiche, which I can't make myself. So 
really appreciate those two places. <laughs> Both places with like lots of um, fresh, yes, healthier types feels of foods. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What does this area have too much of? I'm going to say wind. All right. I am a baseball mom. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. gosh. That is a tough Makes total season <laughs> to be outside. Yeah. I'm a basketball dad, and we're always grateful that our games take place indoors. Oh, I'm Last jealous. about an hour, and I always think about the baseball parents who yeah. are outside. I'm spitting in the dirt heat out of, of my mouth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Three hours in the wind. So, yeah. um, what does this area not have enough of? Uh, this won't come as a surprise, but we do not have enough equal access okay. for children. And access to what? Um, many things. Uh, obviously, books. Um, what happens if when kids do not have books in their home, so two out of three of our low-income children growing up with zero books, that is directly proportional to the number of kids and the percentage of kids who are not on reading level. Mm-hmm. I mean, two-thirds and two-thirds, it's, it's the same. And what happens to those kids who are not on reading level by the end of fourth grade is just scary. Um, Another two-thirds of those kids who are not on reading level by the end of fourth grade will be in jail or on welfare. Wow. And what hurts me about that is those aren't just numbers to a lot of us. Those are, those are children. Those are names with stories and families. And, and those kids do not want to be on welfare. Their parents don't want them to be on welfare. Their dream is the same dream as the kids who... I had at Windsor. I mean, across the city, our second graders want to be doctors and teachers and veterinarians. And because they're growing up in a different zip code should not prevent them from, Mm -hmm. from being able to achieve that big dream. But the lack of access to what they need to be successful um, is prohibitive. I'll, I'll use a quick example. Last night we were watching a basketball game at Westover and my husband told this story about the first year he coached basketball at Bowie. He gets these kids in the in the gym, and this is his team. And he asks them, how many of you have played basketball before? And four hands go up of, I don't know, 20. Mm-hmm. And he looked at him, and he said, with a uniform. And all four hands went down. Hmm. Now... What happens in a, in a basketball sense is you start at square one. So he was teaching his seventh grade basketball team where out of bounds is right. and what the key is and form and um, where that's not where kids who have played basketball on teams for, for five or six years, right. that's not where they have to start. They um, start running plays and exactly. learning the teamwork yes, stuff. They already have some, the press, you know, right. um, and that, so what hap- it's sad in a basketball sense or in a baseball sense or in a volleyball sense um, or in a music musicians. It's the same extracurricular-wise all over as far as access to um, what they need to be competitive. It's tragic when you're talking about right. reading. The thing that, is, that, that really strikes me about that is, is you talk about how you can predict, you know, where a child will end up based on that reading level. Mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine what that kind of pressure is like. Say you're a fourth grade teacher and you mm-hmm. know you've got a child, this kid that you love in your classroom, mm-hmm. and he's behind. Yeah. And you think, I've got to catch this kid up. Otherwise, 
whether or not he's on welfare or yeah. goes to jail, you know, that's something that I can fix now, mm-hmm. you know, at nine years old yeah. and, and the amount of, um, of work and uh, the emotions attached to that I, I, is something that we probably don't understand unless you're a teacher, you know? Yeah. It's, it is really hard on teachers, especially the ones that, um, that's primarily what they're seeing mm-hmm. day in, day out. That's a lot of pressure. Now there's, hope for sure. I mean, it's not all the kids who are below reading right. level. The, and the difference available in that one third that will make it, even though they weren't on reading level in fourth grade, is the teacher. Okay, I'm convinced every time. I mean, it is, it is the relationship with teachers. It's, you know, we have a lot of good teachers who um, know a child's story it's a great teacher who decides to become a part right. of that child's story. Okay. So you're in a, a upper echelon with like Sean Kennedy from Blank Spaces at Cap Rock. Absolutely. And Mark Williams at North Heights and Shanna Peoples from Paladuro. And um, those are those are teachers who have decided I'm going to be a part of this kid's story. And those kids make it. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned those names. All Good. fantastic <laughs> teachers in Amarillo. Yes. Um, how do you describe Amarillo to people outside this area? I tell people, especially now, I don't know, it's changed, but now I tell people it is like a microcosm of the whole world mm-hmm. kind of marinated in barbecue sauce. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's a great with description. With a lot of Texas infusion there. Okay. But yeah, That's I mean, true. you can I mean, find a representative sample of pretty much any culture you're looking for. And I've, yeah, I've, I've found that. And, and I've had a number of guests talk about that, saying that even if you have the weirdest interests or the strangest background, you're going to find your people here. Yeah. You may have to look harder for some groups than others, but yes. it's so diverse that everybody's got some sort of a tribe here waiting for them. Absolutely. I love it. When was the last time you went to the Big Texan? Well, the last time would have been, I don't know if this counts, but August, we went to see Aaron Watson at Starlight Theater. Okay. Does that count? Yeah, Starlight Ranch. Yeah, so that's that's, um, Big Texan adjacent and owned by the same family. So I'll count it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, And then when I was at Windsor doing the writing program, we took our first place winners every six weeks. To the big Texan. So the limo would come to right. Windsor and I, every six weeks I was buckling in a kindergartner to that limo <laughs> and taking these six kids to the big Texan. What's funny is, you know, those, these are native Amarillo kids yeah. for the most part. And for the most part, th- that was their first trip right. to the big Texan. So it was really fun. And that's still the only time my children have been there is yeah. on those trips, you know, that's with school, awesome. So. so fun. What's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo? I'm going to say Wolfland. Um, that was the place where my husband and I bought our first home. It's where all of my children were born. And I wrote an article for a magazine a while back, five or six years ago, on the Wolfland House. Mm-hmm. And I just lost myself in the history there. Um, did you know there was a dairy up by Wolfland Elementary yep. in that area? And just so I'd read about Charles Oldham Wolfland, who bought that section. And then, and Oldham Circles, named right. and then, but really his son, Charles A. Wolflin, was the one who kind of developed it. That Wolflin house was a golf yeah, there's a, headquarters there. It was like a country club. Yes. For- I remember seeing pictures in that research of 
oxen plowing Oldham Circle in the 20s or whatever, mm-hmm. and Charles Wolflin planting a thousand Siberian elm trees on the streets. You see baby trees back And watering then. them with a, a bucket from yes, a water cart. Yes, yeah. I just think it's amazing, and I love imagining, like just sitting there and imagining what this looked like in 1928. Right, and, and did, did he imagine what it would be like, you know, a yeah. hundred years after it's that? phenomenal. What's the most underrated aspect of life in Amarillo? I'm going to say our diversity. I think there's a lot of people who don't realize how diverse Amarillo is. Like I said, there's, we are segmented enough that it's possible to not get out of your bubble. Um, So our diversity goes unnoticed and and underrated and unappreciated. Which is, it's one of the great things about Amarillo um, but can be a, a challenge if you don't yes, get out of that bubble. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Well, Chandra, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's something that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? I'm going to pull maybe one that you haven't talked about. I want to endorse High Plains Children's Home. Okay. My husband is the executive director down there, and it is really tucked away, too. Yes. Way, way south on Western. I would love if you would look it up online. They just opened. um, So it's a residential children's. uh, So they've got residential care for children who have been removed from the home and are living in cottages with six or eight kids. Um, And then they also have a a cul-de-sac that's a community for adults with special needs mm. that can live semi-independently. They just opened this past in 2019, a um, emergency CPS shelter, Okay, which is, there's a huge need. There's really only um, Catholic family services. And then this one at high Plains that's operating and they are full all the time. Um, we need more actually, but they're doing amazing work with kids who are, in a traumatic situation. Um, And so if you can go by, he loves to give tours. Okay. (laughs) It's his favorite thing. So that's what I want to endorse today. Okay. Chandra Perkins, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. So fun. And that concludes the show. First, I want to say thanks to Chandra for the interview. You can find out more about StoryBridge at storybridgeama.org. Thanks also to Wick Realty and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring the show. And I hope you'll attend the museum's Crafts and Drafts event on March 6th. And don't forget about the Amarillo Women's Collaborative event on Sunday, March 8th from 1 to 7 p.m. at 509 South Grant. It's free and it's focused on women-owned businesses. Thanks, as always, to Angelina Marie for putting all the podcast pieces together. Hey, Amarillo is made possible thanks to the financial support of my executive producers, Katie Linger, Neil Nossaman, Ryan Pennington, Daniel Davis, Corey Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Criselda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Wilson Lemieux, and Jason Burr. They support the show through patreon.com slash And you can do that too if you want. This has been episode 125. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.